How do people know that we're Christians, that we, that we belong to Jesus Christ? Day after day we come into contact with people around us. How can they know that we trusted Jesus Christ as Savior? Well, there's several ways. One is through our message. I mean, just about what we tell them. We tell them that uh, we have opportunities to talk about the gospel. We tell them how Jesus died on the cross, paid for sin, and rose again. And, and by, by even just the words sometimes that we say and the way that we, we talk and the, uh, the wholesome words that come out of our mouth, those kind of things, so they can tell by our message. The second thing is they can tell by our actions. Um, our lifestyle. We're just different. Uh, we're supposed to be different. Now, you, you can't tell a whole lot because there could be an unbeliever living good or a believer living bad, but we're supposed to live in such a way that people look at us and say they're different. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by Him. So it's our words and our deeds. But there's one other way that people can know that you belong to Jesus Christ. It's often overlooked. In fact, it's something that a person does very soon after they've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. That's their baptism. It carries the idea of identification. We baptize people, you know, people don't always think about baptism as much. Some people are confused and they think baptism is a part of salvation. It's not. But what we do is we baptize those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, and it's really their first testimony that they can give. So baptism carries that idea of identification. We get baptized to show our identification with Jesus Christ. Well, tonight, as we study Genesis 17, God gives to Abraham a sign, a sign to show that they're connected with the covenant that God gave to them, and that sign of that covenant was circumcision, and we'll talk more about it as we go through it. He tells them this is to be the sign of the covenant that God has made with him and his offspring, and we'll see how it ties together. Well, let's begin. Let's think about it. The last several weeks, we've seen some great things and some bad things. We've seen some bad things because we saw the failure. We saw that Abram had been promised by God that he and Sarai would have a child, and that child would be uh, would be the beginning of of a people group, and ultimately the seed would be the Messiah, and he's supposed to have a son. Well, uh, we, we saw that they failed because instead of waiting on God, because they were getting older, you know, he was up to about 85 years old, and they went ahead and did something different. Sarah said, why don't you take my handmaid, Hagar, have, have a relationship with her, have a child through her. That child can count as mine, and that's how we'll do it. Well, they did that, but it was wrong, and that's not the, the promised one. And we even saw last week how God told uh, Hagar that, that, that she would have a son. His name would be Ishmael. He's not the promised son for Abram, but that God would bless her and bless him. That's what we saw last time. We ended, in fact, if you if you look at verse 15 of chapter 16, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. We saw that. That was a violation of God's word in the sense because that what son wasn't supposed to be there. And, of course, later on when Abram does have the correct son, which is Isaac, there's going to be conflict between those two boys, and the descendants of Ishmael and Isaac have been fighting ever since. Uh, you saw, All you have to do is look at Israel and Palestine, you know, the Gaza Strip and the Palestinians and the West Bank and the Arab nations, and that's who the descendants of Ishmael are, and the descendants of Isaac, of course, are the Jewish people, and that's the conflict that we've been seeing all this time. Time passes. God appears again to Abram to remind him of the promise. God calls him the El Shaddai. We talked about that last week, the guy who's, God who supplies. God is able to do whatever he promises, even if Abram and Sarai think they're too old. I mean, sometimes you ever thought that I don't think that can happen because, I mean, I don't think that can happen. I just don't think it can. That's how we think sometimes. And Abram thought, how, how can a person... Uh, who's 86 and his wife who's 76, how are we going to have a baby 
you know, how's that going to happen? And, and God does it. In fact, he, he waits till they're even older, and we'll see how that ties together. As we look at chapter 17, we see that God changes their names. He wants them to remember the covenant and the promises, and we'll see there. Let, let, me, let me break down the passage for you. First of all, we're going to see in the first five verses the reminder of the covenant, and he changes his name. Then he gives the promises of the covenant in verses 6 through 8. Then we see the sign of the covenant, that's the circumcision. And then, as the passage carries on, and we won't go this far tonight, but he deal, dealing with Sarai, he changes her name, that's 15 through 21. And then we see the whole thing ends up with Abraham obeying God. That's the key. And even though Abraham, or as we call him in this passage so far, Abram, he has, he has disobeyed God, but as a whole... He has obeyed God. He, when he, God said, leave the earth of the Chaldees and go to the land I'll show you and give you, he left what God has told him he has done. He's failed, just as all of us do. But uh, so far, we're going to see that Abram is a man who does what God tells him to do. Well, let's begin. There's the gap between chapter 16 and chapter 17 of 13 years. Look at verse 16 of chapter 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now, Abram, best we can tell, was about 75 years old when he was living in the Ur of the Chaldees. God told him to leave there and go to a land that he would show him. So, Abram has now, it's 11 years have passed. He's got a son, but it's not the right son. So he still doesn't have the promise. And, of course, we know that as the years go by, he's getting older, right? And it's getting is in our minds, he'd be saying it's getting harder and harder for this to work. Well, he's going to wait. God's going to wait 13 more years. Notice how chapter 17 begins. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, we talked about it last time. Why would God wait so long? Why would he wait to Abram is basically 99 to 100 years old before he has that son? And the same thing, Sarah's 90 years old. Why? Because he wants them to realize that this is... A miracle child. This is the child of the promise. This is only something that God can do, not what they can do. And it's really a special deal. Well, we're going to see what happens. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, 99 years old, 13 years have passed. In fact, after 13 years, it almost looks like God may have forgotten I mean, think if you're Abram, and you're 75 years old, and God says you're going to have a son in which the seed will come. And and you wait 10 years and nothing happens, so you think, look, I'm 85, I think it's getting up there. So he does the thing with Hagar, and they have a son, but then God says, that's not the right son. So he goes, oh, okay. And now he thinks, well, maybe next year, well, maybe next year, well, maybe next year, and next year, and next year. And it goes for 13 more years, and you're almost 100 years old. You're 99, and you're saying, God may have... You think maybe God forgot about this thing. Maybe God forgot about the promise. Maybe, God, maybe God's going to change his mind. Who knows what's going to happen. But one thing we have to remember is God's timing is always perfect. It always is. We may think that God has forgotten us. We may think it's not working out the way that he's promised it's going to work out. He'll always do it. Notice what he says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, notice in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, always look at it. When you see scripture and it has, you know, the names, look at them because the, all capitals means the Yahweh, the YHWH. That's the personal name of God. The personal name of God. God appears to Abram and said to him. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how he appeared to him. It doesn't say what form. It doesn't say anything about it. You know, most of the time we read these passages, we don't even give it a thought. We go, yeah, God appeared to Abraham. If you stop and say, okay, wait a minute. Where did he appear to him? What did he look like? 
How did he appear to him? How did God, Abraham know it was God? Tell, tell me about it. It doesn't tell us any of that. But God appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. And, of course, that's the name El Shaddai, the God who provides. We talked about it last week. And The word Shad in Hebrew, the El, when you see El, El is the singular name for God. So that's God and Shaddai. Shad is the word for either mountain or for breast. The idea is the providing one. So the El Shaddai is the God who provides. He's able to provide. And, and what he's really saying is, guess what? Just call me El Shaddai because... You don't think you can have a baby, but let me tell you what you're going to, because I can provide anything. I can do anything I want to do. He's showing Abraham that he is able to do anything. Now watch what he says, verse 2. I will establish... No, no, sorry, excuse me, into verse 1. Walk before me and be blameless. He said, this is what I want you to do. You belong to me. You're under my covenant. I've already made these promises to you. You're my man. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk before me and be blameless. He said, I want you to live for me. I want you to be a, live a pure lifestyle. Has he lived a pure lifestyle up to this point? Not exactly. We think, well, he's done pretty good until the Hagar situation, right? Well, no. Did he go down to Egypt and lie? Yeah. I mean, what we find is he's just like us, isn't he? Have you lived a pure lifestyle up to this time? You'd say, well, I'm doing a... You can't say I'm doing the best I can. You can say I'm doing the best I'm choosing to do at this stage. Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We can live righteously and godly. God says, I want you to walk before me and be blameless. This is not a condition for salvation. This is not a condition for the covenant. But this is one who lives as one who is under the covenant. Abraham was to live a holy and righteous lifestyle. The same is true for us. We're saints. God tells us you shall be holy because I'm holy. He didn't say you shall be holy and that will save you. You shall be holy because you are a saved person. We are to live righteously and godly because who we belong to, not to get to that situation. Now he reminds him of the promises. Verse 2. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. He's reminded him. Back in chapter 12, he told him the same thing. Chapter 15, he tells him the same thing. Chapter 17, now he tells him the same thing. The covenant is with God and Abram. It's an unconditional covenant. We've already talked about that. We already saw when God cut the covenant that it was only God who walked between the animals. God has already said to him, I'm going to give you descendants more than the stars. If you can count the stars, that's how many kids you, you can have, you know. How does Abram respond? What does he do? Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying... Now, it's, it's amazing, because I think what he's doing is it's awe, and it's worship, and it's, it's, it's like, you, you're God. You just keep doing what you say, even when I mess up. Now, do you ever feel that way, that you mess up, and then God still blesses you, and you go, you, you're, the, you're the greatest. <laughs> you're the greatest. I mean, look at what I do, and look what you do. And God says, I know, it's not based on you. It's based on me. Based on God. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations. He's going to be the father of many nations. He said you'll have many offspring. Now, Ishmael's going to have descendants. But this is not, this is not exactly it. You know, if you think about it, Abram, from Abram came all of the Arabs, technically, and all of the Jews. If you want to get it that way, you know, that actual descendant of it. And so, but he's going to do something he's not going to forget because the real promises are coming from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Listen to what he says. Now, I've got something for you. He says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, Abram means high father, exalted father, big dad. 
while Abraham means the father of many nations. Notice this, that, that when you think about it, most of you have heard Ab, Abba. Abba, that means dad, means father. So Ab means father, and Ram, Ab, Abram, means exalted. So Abram, Abram means the exalted father, or the big daddy. But Ab, Haram, Abraham, or Abraham, means father of the multitudes, father of many nations, father of the multitudes. That's what God said. And this is future. Notice what he says, your name should be Abraham. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. That happens yet. If you said to him, how many kids do you have? He could say, well, I got really one, but I'm not supposed to have that one. So, really, I, I don't have any that God had promised. He's 99 years old. God promised him a multitude of offspring, and he's changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And, I mean, you know, and we talked about it earlier, that what if, his, what if somebody came up to Abram and said, oh, your name is Big Daddy, High Father, how many kids do you have? None. And now his name is going to be the father of the multitudes, and they'd say, how many kids do you have? And he'd say, not really any. I mean, I got one, but it's, I'm not supposed to have that one. So, uh, yeah, just none, really. Notice what he goes on to say. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Now, he's 99 years old. What's the chance of that one? Humanly speaking, what's the chance? There's not any chance. But when God says it, he's going to do it. That's why when God tells you to do something, he always empowers you to do what he tells you to do. If he says, I want you to be my ambassador, he gives you the power. That's why you can do all things through the one who strengthens you. Same thing. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. See, not just, by the way, not just Israel here comes through him. But I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Ultimately, the king of kings and the Lord of lords will come through him. The king who will rule the world, and that's the Messiah. He says, you're going to have offspring. I'll make nations of you. Kings will come from you. This is the seed and the blessing that he promised. Many will come and there will be great blessing. And ultimately, the Messiah will come, which will bless the whole world. Now, notice he goes on to say in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now, he's, he's making the covenant, and it's the same thing. I will establish my covenant. It started back in 12 and 15, some in 13. It's the same thing. I will establish my covenant between me and you. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, in between your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Do you realize that if we're going to see it when we go through the Bible as we get a little further, when Isaac gets a little older, God comes to Isaac and tells him the exact same thing he tells to Abram. And then later on, Isaac has Jacob. And God comes to Jacob and tells him the exact same thing he said to Isaac and Abraham. It's the same promises all the way down because he said this will be to you and your descendants throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Remember the covenant is two kinds of covenants? There's a conditional covenant, an unconditional covenant. Conditional covenant is you have something to do and the other person has something to do and you have to both do it. But an unconditional covenant, only one party has something to do. This is an unconditional covenant because God is the only one doing it. And God says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a seed, I'm going to give you a blessing. I will be God to you. I will take care of this. My covenant will be you and your descendants all throughout their generations to be God to you and your descendants after you. So God made an unconditional covenant with Abram. He started back in 12. He continually goes over it and over it and over it. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think God keeps coming to Abraham and telling him the same thing over and over? 
Why does he have to tell us? Why, why does somebody have to tell us the same thing over and over? Because we either keep forgetting it or we don't believe it. And God is coming back to Abram, Abraham every time saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I told you that. I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I think it's all to help him grasp this thing. Now, one of the things he just did, he's changed him. Never again is he going to be called. And as you go through the passage, if you notice, it, it not, not very far down, if you look at verse 9, what does it say? God said further to who? Abraham. He doesn't call him Abram anymore because he's changed his name. And from that point on, now sometimes God does things like that. Uh, he changes names. Uh, Jacob's name got changed to what? Israel. And you know, Jacob wrestled with God, didn't he? What did God do so that he would not forget anything? What did he do? He hit, he hit him. God touched him and messed up his thigh. And from that point on, what did Jacob do? He limped. In fact, he had a cane. Had a stick. And the rest of his life, every time he took a step, he remembered what God had told him. Yes. Well, the, the, all we know, the Antichrist is going to come out of the revised Roman Empire. That whether that's an Arab person or not, we don't know. But we know that he's coming from what was the revised Roman, uh, the, the, the Roman Empire, which was very similar to the Babylonian Empire, land mass-wise, except the Babylonian, uh, the Roman Empire extended further to the west. So it, it, we don't know exactly what kind of descendant. He is called the Assyrian in one passage. And, of course, the Assyrian Empire stretched in that same region as well. So we just don't know. There are a lot of people who speculate that the Antichrist is going to have to be an Arab or he's going to come from the Persian part of the world because ultimately his headquarters are going to be Babylon, which is Iraq, you know. And so we don't, we don't really know. Well, it, yeah, it, but technically because, because of, of what happened with Ishmael, there are a lot of people that are his descendants, technically, that aren't part of the promise. And then you have Isaac and Esau, I mean, Jacob and Esau, and the descendants of Esau became the Edomites, and they're not Jewish as well in that sense, because the Jewish people come from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, those descendants. But you're right. That, that's a, that's a point. We don't know. We don't know exactly who this, the Antichrist is going to be, where, where he's going to come from. He's going to be a demon-possessed man who will seek to control the world and claim to be God. And that's, thank the Lord, that's that we're gone. We're gone. That's why what's not in the Scriptures. Though I, well, uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't know. I mean, there's, uh, he's just not listed about what, who this person's going to be. He didn't give us a lot of information. Daniel and the book of Revelation and the other places tell us where he's going to be coming from, what part of the world, you know, ten-king federation to a three-king to a one-king federation, you know, one-king's going to come out of it. But he didn't tell us anything about him. We just know he's going to be a person that, that after the believers are taken off the face of the earth, there are going to be people following this person because he's going to claim that he can bring peace to the world. That's going to be his, his claim, you know. And he makes a peace pact with Israel, so we don't know a whole lot about him. 
Well, he says, I will, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations come from you. I will establish my covenant between you and your descendants throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. There are highlights here of two things. One, he keeps saying, he will be their God and he will give them a land. Notice at the end of verse 7, to be God to you and your descendants after you. He's going to be God to them, be their God. And then notice verse 8, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be what? Their God. So the two things that stand out, he's going to be God, he's going to be their God, and he's going to give them the land. That's part of the promises. You realize that the descendants are going to be Isaac, and then Jacob, and Jacob's twelve sons, which became the twelve tribes of Israel, and all of these things. That's going to be the descendants who get the promise. Notice it's their land for an everlasting lasting possession. Now, one of the things that you realize that is true, that when the Jewish people are obedient to God, they remain in the land. When they're disobedient to God, they're removed from the land. And by God's grace, something happened in 1948 that hadn't happened in years and years because they were disobedient, rejection of the Messiah. God allowed them to be removed from the land of Israel during the Roman Empire in AD 70 and all of the persecutions. And it wasn't until 1948 that God allowed Jewish people to come back and populate the land and actually have a nation there. It's the first time. And, and we think this is the Ezekiel Dry Bones passage where they've come back, not in, not in belief yet as a people, but they're back. And one day they will be in belief. The Jewish people will believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That's what the Bible tells us that's going to happen. So as you see, he, gives, he says, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourn, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. It's going to be forever. It's their land. And it'll always be their land. And when people argue over the land, the Word of God tells us that God gave the land to the offspring, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'll be their God. God does not change. It'll always be the Jewish people's land. Always will be. The Jews are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that way. The land, the seed, and the blessing. When God makes a promise, it always comes true. And for us, there are promises in the Bible for us. Now, not every promise in the Bible is for us. And when people just pull a verse out, and I've seen people do this all the time, they'll say, look at this verse. It says this. I go, who's that written to? That's not written to you. You know, I mean, let's face it. You've got to make sure that if you're going to claim a promise from the Bible, it's got to be one that you can claim. I mean, there are passages that say, I'll, I'll give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Let me tell you, you can claim that one. I can do all things through the one who strengthens me. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He'll never leave you or forsake you. There are a lot of promises. But then there are promises that aren't written to us. And some of them are written to the Jewish people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, I'll heal their land. People say, that's America. That's not America. It has nothing to do with us. It's Jewish people. It's right before they go into captivity. And God says, if you'll humble yourself and you'll come to me and do what I tell you to do, I'll heal this land. They didn't. So he took them off into captivity. So please don't use that verse for America. We're not God's chosen people. Israel's God's chosen people. There are a lot of Christians in America, and the Christians belong to Jesus Christ, and we're in the body of Christ, but we're not a nation. We don't have that promise. It is a great truth that when people live righteously and godly, and when you have leaders who are righteous and godly, the people rejoice. When you have leaders that are bad, the people hide. That's what the Bible says. When wickedness rules, people hide. When, wicked, when, when uh, righteousness rules, people rejoice. So it's powerful. So here's what he does. He's going to get into 
the sign of this covenant. Notice verse 9. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. Now, keeping the covenant shows that they're under the covenant. They're part of the covenant. This is an unconditional covenant. This is not him saying, if you don't do this, you're, you don't get any of these blessings. Because he's going to do what he's did, said regardless. But he says, this is the sign of the covenant that I want you to do. This is not to get the covenant, but it's because you are under the covenant. The same as we're saved by grace through faith, we're to obey God, not to be saved, but because we are saved, he goes on to explain. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This is how Abraham's descendants were to show that they believed God and they trusted him that, they would, that he would fulfill the covenant. They are to be circumcised. It goes on in verse 11. You shall circumcise in the flesh your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant. Notice it's the sign of the covenant between me and you. The reason it's a sexual thing is because it all deals with an offspring and the seed. This is the sign of the thing that there's going to be Abraham and offspring and Isaac and offspring and Jacob and offspring and these people and the seed. Remember, it goes all the way back to the land, the seed, and the blessing. And that's why I think this is the sign. Alan Ross says the sign of circumcision would be a reminder to Abraham of God's promises and to live righteously as one under a covenant. It's the sign of the covenantal relationship. So he goes on and says in verse 12, Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant is born in the house or is bought with the money or in the foreigner. There's not any sentence. He said they're all going to be. Whether it was your own children, every male among you, whether it's a servant who's been born in your house, whether it's some foreigner that is not even one of your descendants, if they're going to be part of the nation of Israel, if they're going to be part of your family group, if they're going to be part of that, they've got to come under the sign of the covenant. Because, see, they have to believe that God has made the promise of the land and the seed and the blessing. This is what sets it all apart. Uh, it, it, the, whether slave or free, that's the identification. It's showing that they believe God and His promises. Now, I don't know if you understand this or not, but, but as time went through history, and if you were a Gentile, and you decided, this is, of course, before Christ, and if you wanted to believe in the God of Israel, that there would be uh, the God of Israel, there's a Messiah coming and a Savior, and you believe that Israel has the true God and you want to trust in Him, that the, the non-Jew would have to do three things. They would, number one, they'd have to offer a sacrifice because still was a sacrificial system going. Number two, they had to be baptized. You may not have thought of that, but there was a thing called the mikvah, which was a washing and a cleansing. They had to be baptized. And then the third thing, is, and by the way, that's why when they came to John the Baptist and he was baptizing people and the religious leaders sent people out there, the question was, why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or the prophet? Because he was baptizing Jews. See, it wasn't a big deal to baptize a Gentile because that was their identification, but John the Baptist was baptizing Jews. And they're saying, how can you baptize Jews? Because we don't need baptism. It's those non-Jews that need baptism. They had to offer the sacrifice. They had to be baptized. And they had to be circumcised. Now, if a Gentile said, I don't want to go the third route. I'll go the first two. They were called a proselyte of the gate, which meant they, could, they didn't have all the full privileges. They could say, I believe in the God of Israel. I've offered a sacrifice. I've been baptized, but I'm not doing the third thing. And that's what some of them did. Abraham's, God says to Abraham, you're connected with me. And it, to show the sign of the covenant, this is what you do. 
Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant is born in the house, or one who is bought with money from any foreigner, or who is not of your descendants. And then he goes on and says, A servant who is born in your house, or who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Now, there are people today that want to equate baptism of children with circumcision. They say things like, well, if God took the Old Testament Israel, and if when a boy was eight days old, and they circumcised him, showing he was the sign of the covenant, then since, and this is what they say, the church is really spiritual Israel, and so now when a baby is born, believers ought to baptize their children, which puts them under the covenant of God, and eventually they'll be saved. Now, that doesn't fit, and the Bible never teaches that. In fact, baptism is not associated with circumcision. Baptism is a picture, identification of a person's salvation. And what you find, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it was people who said they were believers that were baptized, not children. And you will never find anywhere in the Scripture that babies are baptized or children are baptized unless they believed in Jesus Christ as Savior. Baptism is always for believers. It is showing their identification with Christ. I have a, I know a guy that uh, goes to a church that that believes that that baptism of infants save the babies. They save the babies. And so when his son was was young, he uh, very young baby, they baptized the baby. And he told me then he held the baby up and said, now he's a child of God and will be saved. Well, I don't think you'll find anywhere in the scripture that baptizing a baby saves them. Salvation is always simply by faith. And baptism and circumcision do not match. They're not the same. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, and those descendants. They're not the same. So don't let people try to tell you that baptism of infants is the same as circumcision in the Old Testament. They don't match at all. Notice what he says. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What he's saying is, I'm not, I'm not under the sign. I'm not wearing the sign of the covenant. Now, what did it mean to be cut off? Because that's something that nobody really knows. Because there's different things where he'll say, if a person does this, he shall be cut off from the people. What does that mean? Three things. Sometimes it means removed from the country, that they just had, they moved them out. Sometimes it means they put to death. Some people think that that meant that if a guy wouldn't be circumcised, he'd be put to death. Others say it's saying that they're expecting that God would divinely judge that person. We do not know what it means to be cut off. It may mean ostracized. It may mean that they're saying, you're not fitting. You're not fitting in because the sign of the covenant, the sign of all of those who believe in the Messiah coming and the Jewish people and and the covenant that God made with Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, if you're not going to do this, then you're cut off from these people. You're not identifying with these people. We're not sure. The closest thing that we have to an identification for a baby is a dedication And that's where parents come up. It's really what the parents do, not what the baby does. It's where the parents come up and they say, we want to dedicate this child to the Lord, that we'll do everything we can to bring this child up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And so we have baby dedications. That's not a baptism that doesn't save the baby. All that says is the parents are publicly declaring that they will do everything they can, to to, hoping that this child will trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. 
Baptism for us as a believer is our identification with Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's a, that's a different thing. Now, I just wanted to end with one other verse. Because remember we've seen back over in verse 5, No longer shall your name be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 15, then we'll take up here next week. Uh, well, actually be uh, two weeks because we're going to have the ordination service next Sunday night for Jay. But uh, two weeks from tonight, we'll take up here at verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, notice, it's not, no longer is it Abram anymore. From this point on, it'll always be Abraham. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, what does Sarai mean, best we can tell? Nagger. That's a great name to have, isn't it? Uh, her name will no longer be Nagger. You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And Sarah means the princess. Sometimes say people, people say princess of God or the princess, whatever. But he changes her name as well. She's not going to forget it either. I mean, can you imagine from this point, Abram, Abraham goes and says, Okay, I have an announcement to make. You remember, it's not just him and his little family. He's got 318 fighting men that we've already seen. They have a huge group of people. He's going to make an announcement. I'd like to make an announcement. From this day forward, my name is now Abraham. Get it right. Abraham, God told me to change my name. And Sarah will no longer be called Sarah. She will be called Sarah from this day forward. Because God has said this is all part of this to remind us of the promises he has made. It's not, from that day forward, he's never Abram again. He's Abraham. And she's Sarah from that day forward. God said to you, you're no longer dead in sin. You're alive in Christ. And you are now called a saint. Don't forget it. You're now an ambassador. Don't forget it. You're now the set apart one. You're now a child of God. Don't forget your name. Because that's who we are. It's pretty powerful. More next time, or next couple of weeks from now when we get into this. What were you saying? God reminds Abraham of the covenant. He changes his name. He says you're going to have so many children. He reminds him of the promises of the covenant. The land, the seed, the blessing, the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. So let me give you the applications. First of all, let's trust the promises of God. I mean, they're all over the place. The Word of God has many promises for each of us. He is the El Shaddai. He can do anything. He can do all things. And that's why we can say God, God, whatever God promises, He will. Do think about the greatest promise of all. I give you what eternal life, and you'll never perish. It amazes me to see people who who say, "I believe Jesus Christ has saved me and has given me eternal life." And you say to them, "So you're going to heaven forever?" And they go, "I hope I am." And you go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait, what's the promise? What's everlasting life? How long is that?" They'll say. Forever. Say, so you're going to heaven forever. I hope I am. Wait a minute. Are you believing the promises that God has promised to you? By faith in Jesus Christ, we have an eternal relationship. We come to God by faith. It is not our works or our goodness. When we trust Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. Think that's just one of the promises. Think of all the promises He's given to us. Trust them. Number two, are you identified with Jesus Christ? By circumcision, basically, Abraham's and his descendants were identified with the covenant that God made. But how are we identified with Christ? Well, there's three things. One is by our message. The gospel, we have the good news message. We get to tell people of Jesus Christ and, and uh, how he died on the cross, paid for sin, and rose again. And just We tell them that they can have eternal life. That's our message. And we talked about it this morning. 
You know, it's so, I, I mean, I love, I love saying, here's the gospel, here's the response. Do you realize that there are a lot of people who have never heard that? I mean, we, in our church, we, we talk about this all the time. Here's the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ. Here's the response. Believe in him for eternal life. There are a lot of people, they've never even put that together. They've never heard that. You'd think, wait a minute, you, they've never heard the most basic, basic message of the Bible, that Jesus is the Savior, he died and rose again, and he gives eternal life to all who believe. No, they haven't. They've never put it together. They've had so much other junk tied in with it and mixing it up, they've never been able to put it together. So how can people know that we belong to Jesus Christ? First of all, by our message. Second is by our lifestyle. It's a righteous lifestyle. As Moody said, a Christian's life is the world's Bible. The way we live shows what we believe. James Edwards said, nothing promotes atheism more than people who claim to believe but don't practice it. Now, I'm not saying that if you believe and don't practice it, you're not a believer. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying you're a disobedient believer. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you don't live right, you're a disobedient believer. doesn't mean you're not a believer. It just means you're disobedient. We show our identification with Christ one aspect of it is how we live. Listen to this. This was written in 150 A.D. And the person who wrote this was describing the Christians of that era. He says this. Christians are not distinguished by their speech nor their customs. They live in their own homelands as sojourners. They are put to death. They are poor, but in many ways they are rich. They lack all things, but they abound in all things. They are abused, but they give blessing. They are insulted, but give honor. They do good and are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as those receiving life. That's how he describes Christians in the second century. That when you mistreat them, they glorify God. There's a third aspect, and this is the one we talked about, and that's the ritual of baptism. How do we show our identification with Jesus Christ? By, by our baptism. People ask me about baptism, and I say, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and you've never been baptized, you should, because it's your first testimony of how you tell people your identification with the death and resurrection of Christ. So are you identified with Christ through our message, our salvation message, our lifestyle, or even our baptism? May we trust the promises of God, realizing that He is God Almighty, the El Shaddai. He is able to do whatever He promises. And may by our message and our lifestyle and even our baptism that we show our identification with the One who died and rose again for us and given to us eternal life. Let's pray. And if you've got questions or comments, we'll, we'll uh, deal with it. Heavenly Father, what a great, great night. Thank you for these truths. Lord, as we think about it, we, we realize that that you have given us so many promises throughout the Scripture that, that are for us. And so may we realize that you're the El Shaddai, the all-powerful one, the one who provides, the one who does everything. And so may we trust in your promises that whatever you say, you will do. You who cannot lie has promised eternal life to us. And so when we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life. May we, may we, may we trust that. Lord, we also realize we want to show our identification with you, first of all, by our message that we proclaim the good news message. Second, Lord, by our lifestyle in which we live a righteous lifestyle. And then the third thing is even through our baptism, showing that we've identified with Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, thank you for these great truths. And use us, Lord, for your glory. Thank you for the promises that we see in the Scripture, and may we live and trust those and live those out in our lives. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, questions, comments, anything? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, men, yeah. 
Oh, everybody. Everybody. It, we'll see it. We'll see it as it goes on in the rest of the passage. He takes everybody. Uh, in fact, he says that Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised. And what he did, what he was basically saying is, when a baby's born, when a boy baby's born at eight days, that's when you circumcise him. And all the other men, everybody got circumcised right then. They're all going. I'm glad God came up with this one, right? You know, but that's the sign of the covenant. And uh, so, yeah, that everybody. As you finish on the chapter, it, it basically says, um, "Let me see if I can find." So Abram took Ishmael his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, and all over bought with money, and every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of the foreskin that same day. As God said to him, Abram was 99 years old, Ishmael was 13 years old, and it goes on. All the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money were circumcised. So, bottom line, as we finish the passage two weeks from tonight, every male connected with Abraham showed that they were under the sign of the covenant. Because the promise was to Abraham and his offspring and his family units. That's why you notice that those weren't descendants of Abraham yet, and yet they came under the sign of the covenant because they were they were they were believing in the true God of Israel, the God of the God who told Abraham to leave and to go there, and the God who had given them the victory over all those enemies. I mean if you're one of his three hundred and eighteen fighting men, you recognize that that victory that you won was not because you're a great fighter. It's because God defeated those five or four armies, those four nations, with three hundred and eighteen men. And whatever men, the, the, the brothers, the three brothers, Mamre and his two brothers, Eshcol and the other, whatever they had to fight with. So it's just, I mean, they know, they see that what God does with Abraham. It's amazing. What else? Anything else? There were, there were. There were other people who were circumcised. That was part of some ritual, some other groups as well. That's best we can tell from history. We don't know for sure, but most believe that there were other people groups that had a circumcision as well. As time went by, it seems to me that if you, as you get a little further from Abraham to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob on down into David and all that, by that time, the people living in that group, the Jewish people were the circumcised people and the rest of the nations around them were not. And that's why they would make fun. They would call the, the Philistines the uncircumcised ones. 